1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 310. Follow along with me as we begin our time there. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. What we know that we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixes, uh, has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. Please be seated. If there was one thing that I hated about being in school, maybe hate's too strong of a word, if there's one thing I strongly loathed during my time in school, it was final exams. Maybe some of you are strange and you enjoy taking final exams, but I dreaded the week of final exams, really from high school all the way through college and even into seminary and even as such today. I especially loathed these exams when certain professors would, would give an added amount of weight and importance to the exam, and so you have some classes where you know, 50, 60% of your final grade comes from that one test. That seems so unfair, so illogical to me as a student. Because regardless of how hard I worked throughout the semester, regardless of how perfectly I filled out every other assignment, I knew that I could botch it all by messing up on that one final exam. And so regardless of how well prepared I was for any exam throughout all my years in school, I never felt confident going into final exams. Because I knew that just one bad night's sleep, uh, one just absent-minded moment could wreck it all for me. Now maybe you're more confident than I am. At least you were more confident in school. But I think for many of us, that same sense of anxiety and, and fear is, is what a lot of people experience, not when they think of a final exam in school, but when they think of that final day of judgment. Many people, I think if you ask, like to believe that, that they probably will be okay in that final day. And they imagine this, this hypothetical situation where they stand before God or St. Peter, as the common tale goes, and, and they're asked, you know, why should I let you in? Many people rehearse these answers in their heads as to, to why they should be allowed in, how they can prove themselves in that final moment. And while some people perhaps may be confident in the, the works they've accomplished throughout this life, confident enough to think that they've proven themselves, I think most people, if pushed, would have to admit that there is at least that 
that one lingering sense of doubt in the back of their mind. That one thought that tells them, what if you didn't do enough? What if you answer the question just, just a little off? And what if in that moment it turns out all of the, those good deeds, all of your hard work was a complete waste of time? And what if you're unable to prove yourself worthy? For a lot of people, this is the, the image they have of final judgment. As if it is this one grand final examination in which God is putting us on the spot and telling us, tell me why you deserve this. And if you believe that, if that's what you have in mind, then there's no reason to ever be confident about the future. There certainly is no reason why any one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, could ever be certain of our eternal destiny. For there's always going to be doubts. There's always enough mistakes we make to cause us to wonder if we're going to make it. What we come to understand in 1 John, as we've already seen in weeks past, is that isn't the test that John speaks of, nor is that the idea of judgment lying ahead of us. For while many people misunderstand and, and falsely proclaim that the gospel is this call to prove yourself, what 1 John reminds us is that the gospel is a call to come be yourself, to come become that which God has called you to be, that which God has already made you. And even as we look at our text today in 1 John 2 and in 1 John 3, we see that assurance. We see that confidence, and we see that confidence lies not in what we do, but in what God has already done on our behalf. Not in what we know, but in what we are. And so as we look at our passage today, my prayers, we might see that gospel calling. And that for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, this might be a much-needed motivation to drive for, to strive for greater righteousness. And for those of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, that this might be a wake-up call, that you can never do enough for salvation. Salvation is found purely in faith in Jesus Christ. With that being said, let's go ahead and open our time in a word of prayer, and we'll begin looking at the evidences of a person who's truly in Christ, the evidences of a person who will make it in the day of judgment. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time today. God, it's such a pleasure to be back in 1 John, finally, for the first time in a very long time. It's such a pleasure to be back in a text that is once again so encouraging, ultimately. And that is my prayer this morning, God, that for all my brothers and sisters in Christ, that they might be truly motivated and encouraged by the words of the Apostle John here. Might they be reminded of the fact that, that you do not call us to prove ourselves worthy of the kingdom but that you've already declared us to be citizens of your kingdom and that you simply call us to become that which you have already made us and which you are making us continually. As such, Lord, those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we might be motivated to strive after righteousness all the more, not because we hope to make it someday, but because we know what is to come. As always, God, I pray for those who do not yet know you. God, our world is full of people that are desperately trying to prove themselves to you daily. But your word reminds us that they can never do enough to prove themselves worthy. And that if that is their only hope, God, that they will end up in hell. And so I pray that they might be humbled this morning by the text of John. Might they be reminded of the fact that salvation is, comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, God. And I pray that you save them from their sins this morning. As always, God, remove all distractions from us. Speak powerfully to us through your word. Holy Spirit, convict us, encourage us, build us up as a unified community of children and might you do this all to the glory of your son the son jesus christ's name we pray all these things amen 
as we begin to consider that future day of judgment and, and the evidence that should be in the life or will be in the life of everyone who's truly in Christ, we begin with this picture of confidence. Confidence not just in the present, but confidence in judgment. We see that confidence depicted in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Look back with me again as we read of that future event. John says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. As our text begins, it, it begins with that calling that is found throughout all of 1 John, that calling to abide in Christ. If you recall, this is really one of the main themes of 1 John, this call to abide, this call to persevere. And just as John has done in the first two chapters, John continues to give us tests and markers of how you can know whether or not you are abiding. As he returns to this test of obedience, he speaks of abiding in Christ so that in the day of Christ's appearance, we can stand with full confidence and not shrink back away in shame. Now, when John speaks of this future event, that which he calls the coming of Christ or his appearance, he uses language that carried with it both cultural significance as well as biblical significance. Culturally, if you lived in John's day, you associated this idea of a coming or an appearance with the appearance of a political ruler, a king, who would travel throughout his territory and visit various cities to inspect it, to see if its citizens are living in accordance with the laws. If you lived in that day and age, you, you can imagine you would know just how much work would have gone into preparing your city for the king's visit. Because the last thing you would want would be for the king to, to find you wanting, to find that you've fallen out of his favor, to find that your city has not been kept up to the kingdom's standards. This was an image that was very common in that old day. Biblically speaking, then, we see the significance carried over, not to describe the coming king, that is, a Roman emperor, but we see this phrase used commonly to describe this future return of our king, King Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the future coming that John describes here in 1 John 2, and it's the same coming that the Apostle Paul describes frequently throughout his letters. You can read Paul's references to it in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, or, for the sake of our time this morning, just turn back a little bit to the book of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul speaks repeatedly of this future, imminent return of Jesus Christ, the King. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, Paul repeatedly speaks of this future event as a means of motivating his readers. We see this first in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19, where Paul says, For who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In a very similar manner, later in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, picking up in verse 11, Paul, speaking of this similar future event, says, Now may God our Father, himself, and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as also we do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Time and time again in the New Testament, we see passages like this, 
where Paul or John, when motivating the readers, when reminding the readers why they are to live righteously, tell them, remember, Jesus is going to show up soon. And when he shows up, you, you want to make sure that you're doing that which is pleasing to him. For Paul and for John, that imminent return was significant and it was cause for great rejoicing. For it was in that return that, that Jesus would see the work that people like Paul have accomplished. That Jesus would give his approval of that work that his servants had accomplished. But as we turn back to 1 John chapter 2, we understand that, that the return of the king is not an exciting event for everyone, is it? Or at least certainly not an event to cause great rejoicing. For John speaks of two reactions to this return. Look back at 1 John chapter 2 verse 28. Again, in that verse we see there are those people who shrink away in shame at the return and those who stand confidently, those who rejoice. Now, I don't think it's hard for many of us to wonder why someone might shrink back in shame at the coming of Christ. Maybe you've been at work before wasting your time and suddenly you realize your boss is standing right behind you, just watching you. And you realize in that moment that you failed to do the job you've been paid to do and, and suddenly you feel kind of shame and you, you have to make up an excuse as to what you were doing, right? As a student, I can remember many times just doodling on my paper only to realize to great horror that my teacher was standing over my shoulder staring down asking me what I was doing in class, right? If you've ever been caught doing something you're not allowed to be doing and suddenly your authority figure stands right before you, you understand why you would be shameful, why you would be afraid, and as John says, in that day of judgment, then it should be no surprise that when the king of creation comes before people, there will be a great number of people who will respond in terror and great disappointment. For upon seeing that holy face of God, they will suddenly be confronted with the fact that they have fallen far short of the king's orders. And they will do that which we would do by nature. They will slink back into the darkness, hoping to avoid the, the gaze of their king. There are a great number of people that will do that, but shockingly, as John says, there will be many others who will stand before this high king with confidence, with joy, with exaltation. And in fact, John is inviting all of us as believers to be a part of that audience, to be a part of those citizens who can stand with confidence before a sinless, righteous judge. Now the question, of course, is who in their right mind could stand with confidence before Christ, right? I mean, who amongst us immediately would think, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, the, the holy, omnipotent God of all creation, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to just standing right in front of him. Right, that's, that's an intimidating thought. And so one must ask, well, how could anyone possibly have this reaction? Well, John does not leave that to our guessing, for he says in verse 29 exactly why or who is able to stand before Christ with complete confidence. Look there again at verse 29. As he pictures this day of judgment, he says, if you know he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. Here we see the key to that confidence. Here we see that which distinguishes a person that responds in shame and a person that responds in joy. And the first element, the first key to it is that key of preparation. It's that key of morality, of obedience. And John says, if you know that your king is coming and you know he's perfectly righteous, if you know his law, if you know his expectations, well then you should fall in line with those expectations. 
And if you've done those things, if you've prepared in that way, if you have lived your life in accordance with what makes a person a proper citizen, well, then of course you'll have no reason to be ashamed in his day of visitation. For you will stand as a cleaned up citizen, eager to show your great king the work you've done on his behalf, the work you've accomplished to try to make his name great. The way we can stand before God confidently, then it seems, lies at least in part to these righteous deeds. In fact, as we read throughout all of the New Testament, we see this this basic command, this basic expectation time and time again. The life of the believer is to be a life of righteousness. We'll get to that a little more here later in 1 John 3. The life of the believer is not to be marked with these sins. The life of the believer is not to be marked by lying or deceit or arrogance. It's to be marked by deeds of righteousness. And it would be tempting then, at the reference to this righteousness, to immediately jump ahead in John's argument. And to say, okay, in order to be confident in the day of judgment, I need to make sure I'm doing enough good. I need to make sure that I'm accomplishing enough righteous deeds. That way, when the day of judgment comes, all my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And, and again, God realized that, that I'm worthy of his respect. I'm worthy to be deemed a good citizen. But there's a significant problem with that, isn't there? For if we stop there, if we assume that our confidence in the day of judgment is rooted in our own righteousness, well, we're no different from any other religion in the world. For that is the confidence that every other religion offers. That message, it says, do enough and hope that if, if you do enough in that day of judgment, you'll make it through. This is the message of Islam. This is the message of Mormonism. It's what defines whether or not you get into the highest heaven or lower heaven. It's, it's based on how many good things you do. This is what everyone worldwide pretty much assumes to be true. But that's not quite what John says, is it? For he doesn't just say, if you know he is righteous, you know that if you do enough righteous things, he'll be pleased by you. Now John adds this essential last phrase to describe why a person can be confident in the day of judgment. Again, look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Born of him, born of, of God? That's, that's the defining point of confidence? That's what ultimately John is pointing to? This is where John is distinguishing the Christian faith from everyone else. For it's in that last phrase that John is showing us, here is the confidence you have in the day of judgment. And the, that phrase reminds us, that the reason why we have confidence in the day of judgment is not because we will stand before Christ as a good citizen, but because we'll stand before Christ as his brothers and sisters. We'll stand before the Son of God, not ready to be judged simply, but ready for our family reunion. And so we rejoice because we already know He's one of us. We're one of him. We are part of the same family. And so, of course, he's going to love us. Of course, he's going to approve of us because we are his children. Now, at this point in time in his discussion, it would make sense for John to jump ahead to the result of that confidence. That's what he does in verse 4 of 1 John 3 and describes what it looks like to grow in that confidence. But in order to make sure we understand just how shocking that phrase is, born of God, in order to make sure that we understand how confident we really should be in that day of judgment, 
it's essential that we really hone in on that phrase. And it seems that John himself understands its importance. For as we pick up the discussion in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, it, it's almost as if John himself is thrown for a loop. And as he writes those words, born of God, he suddenly thinks, that really is amazing when you think about it. That really is unbelievable that that phrase could describe any one of us. And so instead of jumping ahead and describing what a life of righteousness looks, John's heart soars in verses 1 through 3. And instead of just speaking of our confidence, he speaks of why we're confident. He speaks of the love of God. Or to use the terminology here, the love of the Father. Look with me and see that love and why it should cause us to rejoice and be so confident just as John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, having written of the fact we're born of God, he says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet we, we, what we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. To make sure we understand the significance of being born of God, John digs into this idea of what it means to be called children of God because the status is awe-inspiring. John does not depict it a great uh, deal here, but if you turn back to another book, I believe written by the same author, the Gospel of John, you see he also spends a great time of discussing that doctrine then. So turn back, if you will, to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see that the same image, born of God, children of God, is it's a pretty significant theme. And we see that theme from the very beginning. John chapter 1 depicts this status, describing the ministry of Christ and the resulting gift. In verses 9 through 13, John wrote, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hopefully you see the similar language used in 1 John 3 and John chapter 1, the language of being born, the language of the world not recognizing Jesus as God. Most importantly, you see that repeated theme of, of God's children, God's believers being referred to as born-again people. Just a couple pages over in John chapter 3, we see Jesus himself using the same language to describe his ministry, to describe the gift of salvation as he encounters the Pharisee Nicodemus. As Nicodemus is asking Jesus how he could become one of Jesus' followers, how a person can, can be saved, can enter into the kingdom of heaven, we see this conversation picked up in verse 3, where Jesus, in response to Nicodemus' question, answers and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed to you that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Here in John 1 and John 3, we see the same language of 1 John 3. This language of, of being chosen by God. And not simply chosen as a servant, although that certainly is language that the rest of the New Testament uses. But chosen to be a son. Chosen to be welcomed into God's family. And we find in these few verses is that, that glorious doctrine of adoption that other authors write about a great deal in other passages in, in books like Romans. And what we find in these passages is this glorious picture where God does not go through the world and say, okay, I want the best and the brightest. I want those people that can really bring a lot into the kingdom and I'll give them important tasks and they'll serve as great servants in my kingdom. No, we're given this image that the God walks through an orphanage and he chooses the weakest, most pathetic, most helpless creatures and he says, I want that one. I'll take this one. And he chooses for himself these individuals that he then brings into his family. And he adopts them as his children. Not because they willed it, not because they deserved it, but because God chose them. It's a beautiful image. And what is particularly beautiful is what John ultimately gets back at in 1 John 3, for John understood that this adoption did not simply speak to some present glorious blessing. It did not speak to, to something that keeps us going day to day. It speaks ultimately to an infinitely more glorious future. And it's that future that John is describing back in 1 John 3 for again. Look at the result of being called children of God. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The most glorious aspect of being called a child of God is this future aspect, this future inheritance. And as John describes that future inheritance, he admits that we don't know a whole lot about that future day. He, he can't give a great amount of detail as to what it means. But he does speak of two glorious elements of that future event. The first is this encounter with the holy, glorious Son of God. Because we are his children, he says, we will stand before Jesus confidently and we will see him in all of his beauty and all of his majesty, and all of his holiness. We will see the one who saved us from our sins, who died for our sins, who rose again to defeat our sins. Our eyes will be fixed on the most beautiful, awe-inspiring image we will have ever seen and will ever see for all eternity. And this encounter is so glorious, he says, that we ourselves also will be just as he is. We ourselves will be transformed in a blink of an eye by his glory, by his holiness. The Apostle Paul speaks of this future transformation often. You can read of it in Colossians and 1 Corinthians, but if you would, for the moment, just turn back with me to Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of this glorious future. 
There in Philippians 3, Paul is speaking of his ultimate goal in life, that desire to please God, that desire to run the race with great perseverance. And as he describes that calling, he eventually comes to this glorious end. In Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I, like John, don't understand what this means in totality. But I know in the language of Paul and the language of John that this moment is beyond anything we could ever possibly experience here. As I've tried to wrap my mind around that, that change that must come over us, the closest thing I can imagine in this world is, is that change of disposition that can come in just seeing a, a long-lost friend or a family member that you haven't seen in years. Perhaps you've had this experience where, where maybe you're having a difficult day, maybe you're having a very difficult year, but just hearing the voice of that loved one brings a smile to your face. It brings you that sense of peace and calm. And it makes all those other difficulties kind of melt away in the background. Perhaps, and I pray this is the case, you have that friend, you have that loved one, where regardless of how difficult of a, a circumstance you face, just their mere touch changes your entire disposition. Changes all of your thoughts. How you are physically even carrying yourself. I can think back just to a, a couple months ago where my wife and I had the opportunity to visit some close, close friends of ours in Texas. We foolishly decided to drive through a horrific ice storm to get there, only to be trapped by another ice storm in Texas. It took us 14 hours, I think, to drive to Dallas. It was a miserable 14 hours. I wish I could say I, I took it all in stride with a smile on my face, but I didn't. It was hard, it was stressful. But there was something about pulling up in front of their house and simply seeing them again that brought such rest and such peace to my heart. And it made that long drive well worth the stress, at least in my mind, maybe not to my wife and kids, but, but to me, it made it well worth the effort. Because just seeing those friends that I've known for so long brought peace, brought joy. I trust you all have loved ones like that in your life that, that bring you that peace that can change your entire disposition. And if you do, how, imagine how infinitely sweeter it must be to not simply hear the voice of a friend or a parent or any loved one, but to hear the voice of God who tells you, well done, good and faithful servant, who transforms your body into that glorious future that we are painstakingly working towards day to day here on this fallen earth. Imagine how beautiful that must be. And as you imagine that future beauty, do not miss the significance of what John is saying, for he is saying that is your guaranteed future believer. He speaks here to believers who are struggling to avoid falling into basic heresy. He's speaking to people here who are by no means important in the world, who the world does not even recognize as significant. And yet he says, you're children of the high king. And someday your sad, lowly states will be transformed into glory you cannot even imagine in this moment. Someday you will see Christ and you will be filled not with fear, but with joy and rest 
and peace. And in that moment, for the first time, you will see Jesus as he is in glory. And for the first time, you will finally be the person God has created you to be. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more frustration, no more confusion. Just peace with the one who created you and the one who saved you. This picture is not dangled out like a carrot on a stick to keep us going. This picture is given to us as the guaranteed future for every child. For as John is reminding us yet again, when we picture this future day of judgment, we are not picturing this future day when we walk into some terrifying classroom for a final exam we're not prepared for. Now we walk into that room as a child walks into the bedroom of his mom and dad fully confident that he will be received with love. Fully confident the parent will be thrilled to see whatever that kid has been up to, whatever craft that child has created for their, for their parent. Fully confident because they understand that the love of a parent cannot so easily be shaken. And so we too, as the children of God, will walk into that day of judgment not with fear and shame, but with love, with an eternal sense of relief. And so because of that, because we know how glorious God is and because we know how loving God is, we will respond like any good kid responds. We'll, we'll respond now by trying to become more like our dad. We'll respond by trying to become more like our parents. We'll respond by daily purifying ourselves because we know our eventual end and so we just want to look as much like it as we can. We want to be as prepared for it as we can. And so verse 3, we fix our eyes on that future glory and daily we purify ourselves we do that work to do that which is pleasing to our high king to our father who loves us deeply this is the confidence of the child this is the motivation behind every righteous act that you and i perform as a believer and as a result of these things as a result of this confidence as a result of that love we then grow into the righteous vision that john describes in chapter 3 verses 4 through 10 we carry into this final point in which we understand that because we are children of God, we will inevitably bear some kind of family resemblance with that righteousness of God. We see this family resemblance depicted again in verses 4 through 10. And since it's been a few minutes, let's read through those verses once again to see what sort of family resemblance John is aiming at. 1 John 3, picking up in verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The discussion of John here really falls on the heels of, of verse 29 of chapter 2. It is here where he's describing what it means to grow in righteousness. And as he does, he's really describing two different lifestyles. He describes two different families. And his point is, you inevitably, every single one of us, will gradually resemble one or the other. You can't be in both households. 
The first family that we see depicted here, the first house, is that, that family of sin. John describes this household, this family. In verse 4, he says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And depicting this first family, John quickly defines that, that spirit of this household of sin, that defining attitude of everyone who lives in this household. That attitude, that spirit, is summarized in this idea of lawlessness. It's important to understand what John is saying here because he's not saying if you ever commit a sin, that means you're of the devil. That's not what he's saying. No, look carefully and see how he speaks of this lawlessness, this idea of of the spirit that lies beneath every sin. You see him kind of describing the spirit throughout these verses when he uses language like practicing lawlessness, practicing sin. And what John is saying here is, is describing this lifestyle in which sin is habitual. It really defines everything a person does. And the reason why it defines it is because that person is ruled by a spirit of lawlessness. Lawlessness is just a big word that describes open rebellion against God. You can think of it very clearly if you just consider that image of the fall of man in Genesis 3. This is a great picture of lawlessness in the heart that that all of us contain fallen. In that famous story in Genesis 3, We see Satan deceiving Adam and Eve. And we ultimately see Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God. And why do they choose to disobey God? What are they hoping to accomplish? Well, they're hoping to maintain some ownership of the kingdom without the king. They believe that they don't need his rule to still be satisfied in paradise. And so their sin is not wicked simply because it's in direct disobedience to God, but because in in what it believes, what it's suggesting. It's suggesting that you don't have to submit to your creator. Well, that's the spirit of lawlessness. And that's the spirit that is ultimately behind every sin we commit. This is so important to understand. For it gets to the heart of, of why sin is so dangerous, why sin is so wicked. Oftentimes when we think of sin, we imagine just the most grotesque examples we can think of in our society. But when we do this, we tend to excuse ourselves from those things, don't we? But sin is much more tricky than that. Much more deceptive. What we understand in Scripture is you can have morality, you can have the semblance of justice, but still have a spirit of lawlessness if you're trying to do it all apart from God. You can be a great law-abiding citizen, but if your motivation is to purely serve yourself, well, then you're just as lawless as the most wicked criminal you can possibly imagine. That is the spirit of this household of sin. And in case his readers do not understand the significance of this, we see, secondly, this family of sin is ultimately ruled by the devil himself. Look there again at verse 7. There we read in verse 7 and 8, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason why we can be confident that the house of sin will always be ruled by the spirit of lawlessness is because its ruler is the lawless one. It is the devil himself. The devil who John says has sinned from the beginning. 
Jesus uses this similar language to describe both Satan as well as Satan's followers. If you look back at John chapter 8, in John 8, again, Jesus using this language of birth, Jesus using this language of growing up in the image of our parents, has this debate with these Pharisees. In John chapter 8, verse 39, we read, They, that is these Jewish leaders, answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. They're arguing for their authority. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, We are not born in fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth uh, in him. Jesus here in John 8 is using the same language of John in 1 John 3. This language of the fact that, that if you have a life of sin, if you have a life in which you are ruled by this rebellion against God, you are ultimately not following after your own desires, you're following after the rules of Satan. You're following after the one who seeks to do nothing but kill and destroy, the one who seeks to do nothing but destroy the kingdom of God. This is why John, throughout this letter, takes the false teachers so seriously. Why he said it is so important to not fall into those temptations, because when we do, we are not simply falling out of a path of wisdom or righteousness, we are actively following after Satan. And John's point is clear. If you make a habit of sinning, if you maintain the spirit that is not in submission to the Father, you ultimately are, are revealing this family resemblance of the devil himself. You are a part of this household that is opposed to God, and you are a part of this household that ultimately will be destroyed in his wrath. As we consider this, it's important to take a, a moment and, and consider again why it is so important then to take sin so seriously, even in our world today. Even as believers, we can fall into this pattern of speaking our sin as, as our weaknesses, as our struggles. And it's fine to use this type of language, but we must never remove the, the gravity of our sin from the origin of, of the devil himself. We must never forget just how dark these deeds of the flesh are, how destructive they are, how, how abhorrent they are in the eyes of our Creator. Every sinful act is an act of open rebellion against the one who will one day come and judge all of creation. And as such, your sin is nothing to be trifled with. It is something that must be killed. It's something that must be dealt with seriously. And it is something that does not belong in the household of God. It is that second household, that household of God, that ultimately John is speaking of in this passage. It is ultimately that family resemblance that he's trying to drive us forward to. Just as we saw a few elements of the household of sin, we also see the same elements of the household of righteousness in 1 John 3. In direct contrast to the house of sin, where the reigning spirit was rebellion, the reigning spirit in the household of God, of course, is righteousness. It's submission to the high king. Once again, 
Look there, if you will, at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins, since no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, this isn't to suggest that followers of Christ never commit any sin. No, he's made this clear already and earlier in 1 John. We all sin. This is why confession is so important. He again is speaking of this habit of practicing sin. And so he says, just as followers of Satan make a practice or a habit of following after Satan, so too followers of Christ will make a habit or practice of following after Christ. We will strive to be righteous because we understand that is pure, that is desirable, that is lovely. So that is what we set our minds on. That is what we follow after. We do this. We are ruled by the Spirit because unlike the followers of Satan, we are followers of Christ. And as John reminds us here in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 3, Christ himself was sinless. We see that in 1 John 3, 5. And so knowing that, that sin has no part of Jesus' nature, we have no desire to be part of sin. Not only that, but we also see the work of Christ as work that's done directly against this sin. Follow along with me again as we read later in 1 John chapter 3. In verse 8, we read, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Again, it's just a simple picture. Jesus came as our sinless Savior. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins through his blood atonement. Jesus came to destroy the house of Satan. Therefore, those of us who claim we are part of the house of Christ will naturally want to look more like Christ. We'll naturally want to go along the path that he has set up for us. And we will do this Not because we are inherently good, but because we have our natures fixed, again, as the children of God. And so our ongoing response, as the passage close, is the avoidance of sin. And in verse 10, we are told, by this, the children of of, of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Having given this long discussion about this family resemblance, this long discussion about what it looks like your own righteousness, we find ourselves right back where we found ourselves time and time again in 1 John. We find ourselves back in the point that John has made time and time again in which he says, this isn't that hard. It's not that mysterious. It's not that confusing. If you love Christ, you will remain in the light as we've seen. If you love Christ as you remain in the light, you will accomplish that which is righteous as we've seen today. And if you're accomplishing that which is righteous, well, you're going to continue to love your brothers and sisters. A test we've looked at in weeks past and a test we'll pick up again next week. If, however, you are not of Christ, well, then your life will be marked by darkness. If you're not of Christ, well, then your life will not be marked by righteousness. If you're not of Christ, over time you will resemble not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Satan. In the end, the test is clear. In the end, we know if we're of God if we simply consider the spirit that drives us and if we simply consider the lifestyle that we are leading by the power of God who indwells us. The question we must ask ourselves, of course, as we consider all of these things, as we consider this confidence, as we consider this love, as we consider this family resemblance, is who exactly do we resemble? Who do you look more like? What drives your motivations daily? Is it a spirit of submission? When we read of this future inheritance in 1 John 3, 
Does your heart soar with joy? Or is it somewhat of a shrug of the shoulders? Is it you saying, I, I just don't see it. I, I don't see why that's such a big deal. Well, please understand me. That if that is you, if, if your heart is not ruled by submission of Christ, if your life does not contain these acts of righteousness that really define the life of the believer, please do not miss the significance of what John is saying. For you are headed down a very definite path. Not towards the kingdom of heaven, but towards hell. And so if you have not put your faith in Christ this morning, my encouragement to you is this. The king is on his way, but are you ready? Have you submitted to him? Are you confident? Or are you terrified? If that is you, I encourage you, I beg you to first and foremost repent of your sin. To turn away from those acts of wickedness. I beg you to to place your belief, your faith in this King Christ and his atonement. And I promise you that if you do these things, you too will receive the kingdom of God. You too will make it in in the end, not because you are so great, but because God has picked you. God has chosen to set his love upon you, and God will call you his child. If you have any questions about that process, please ask me. Please let me know, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards in the lobby or talk to one of our elders at our welcome center outside. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, again, the reality is that our king is coming soon. Are we ready? Are we ready to stand confidently before him? Are we daily examining ourselves and making sure that we really are looking more and more like our father Christ? Making sure that we're looking more and more like that family of God. Let us examine ourselves and repent of that sin. Let us be surrounded with friends who are willing to call us out for those sins that make us look like we're part of the other side. Let us pray to God to be grown up in his image, in the image of his son. Let us stand confidently as children of God today and as we look ahead to the future. And let us, with great confidence, live out our identity as the beloved children of the King. Not because it will bring us any respect from the world around us, but because ultimately it will bring us into the presence of our perfect and glorious and beautiful Savior. That is your future, brother and sister in Christ. I pray it might be as much of an encouragement to you as it was an encouragement to John's readers as much as an encouragement to me today. With that being said, let me close this in prayer and the band will come out and play one last song. Father in heaven, God, it is so easy to struggle with our assurance of salvation. And it is inevitable if we are placing our trust in our own deeds. God, we know that we are not saved by works. We, are, we know that we are not saved because you foresaw our ability to accomplish some great deed. But we are saved by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, God. Might we be humbled by that fact? Might we be encouraged by that fact? Might we be amazed by the reality that we are your children, God, and we praise you for calling us that. God, I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, I know, I pray for those who are here this morning who have not put their faith in you, who are not yet your children. Save them from their sins this morning. Break them of their disobedience and bring them to a saving relationship through your son, Jesus. For the rest of us, God, might we daily be motivated to stand confidently proclaiming your name, not because of the glory we receive on this world, but because of the glory that is yet to come. 
And it is to that glorious end that we pray all of these things and ask Jesus for your soon return. Amen.